hype, 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 and stress, and hype, and oh my god, did you hear about the girl that got into all of the Ivy League schools on the strength of her essay alone, and I mean, those are, those are the best ones, the Ivy League schools are the best schools you can, and her glorious essay will now be encased next to the U.S. Constitution in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, did you even hear about all of this, I'm kidding, of course, but uh, that is a real story about an essay, quote, getting someone into all the ivies, unquote. But it's a real great example of the kind of news story that my guest today is challenging head on. We're all told via screaming, breathless headlines from various news outlets that college admissions means, well, you might as well cross your fingers and pray because that's as effective a strategy as any as far as getting into college goes. But is this the reality? Whose reality is it? Well, my guest this week is Ben Castleman, chief economics writer for 538.com, and he says it's all totally overblown that admissions mania and panic is an outsized media construct, and he's got the numbers to prove it. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome to The Crush. I'm Davin Sweeney, a college admissions counselor who talks to people who are way smarter than I am about college and college admissions and all things pertaining to that. Subscribe to this on iTunes. Do it. It's the best. So Ben Castleman is a journalist at a beyond hot media outfit, 538.com, and he'll tell us more about what his organization is and does and where it came from. But as chief economics writer, Ben wrote an article for the website titled Shut Up About Harvard, the goal of which was to point out a lot of things, but mainly that there's a significant media bias around the reportage of the college admissions process and that the near impossibility of getting in that we all hear about is really only true for a very, very small percentage of Americans. When it comes to higher education, the overwhelming majority of students in this country go to places that don't engage in selective admissions, which is to say places that admit less than 50% of the students that apply. So we talk about this issue, how he got into this journalism racket, the economics of higher education in general, the role of community colleges in this system, when college is and isn't a workforce preparation device, how we have two parallel systems of higher education in this country, the challenges of attempting to build a middle-class life for yourself, student loan debt, and just for good measure, why the Saudis are keeping oil prices so low. We spoke at the 538 offices in the Lincoln Center neighborhood in Manhattan. You work for 538.com. Yeah, I mean, so the quick history, which some people will be aware of and some people won't, is is that Nate Silver, who's a statistician, had uh, back in the 2008 campaign, had started aggregating polls and trying to predict uh, initially in the Democratic primary, that was the, the Hillary um, Barack Obama race, kind of looking at who was going to win and got some notoriety. He then went over to the New York Times and did that for the 2012 election cycle. And then um, a couple of years ago, we actually just celebrated our two-year uh, anniversary Congratulations. here. Um, very exciting. Uh, but uh, it launched at, at ESPN as a, as a standalone site that's dedicated to 
really data in all walks of life. So we, we still cover uh, politics, um, as, as we always have. We cover sports, of course, we're at ESPN, but then we also cover um, arts, we cover science, uh, and I cover economics primarily. So the idea is sort of that we can bring numbers and data and evidence to a much wider range of, of subjects. Why is that like a strangely new phenomenon? I mean, in some ways, I think it isn't. Um, you know, if if you go back to to look at uh, you know newspapers even a hundred years ago, you'll you'll see numbers in there. You'll see data. Of course, it's presented in a different way than it is now. Uh, and the idea of using data and sort of evidence based journalism is one that's existed for uh, for years or for decades. I think that we have seen uh, a few things happen over the course of the last uh, decade, maybe. One is just the availability of computers and computing power has made it a lot easier for a lot more people to uh, to do this kind of analysis that previously wasn't possible and wasn't possible on the kind of time frame uh, that journalism has to take place in. We don't have the luxury of spending a couple of years uh, sitting around doing, doing research and coming out with an academic paper. Hmm. Um, the other thing is I think that there has been some frustration with the sense that some journalism, and certainly not all journalism, uh, but was not driven by by evidence. Uh, and we certainly saw this in the politics realm, which is I think kind of why that's where 538 got its start. You would hear people sort of right before the election, this happened in 2012, um, a couple days before the election, people saying on TV, it's too close to call. Nobody knows who's going to win. It's a dead heat. It wasn't a dead heat. Right? <laughs> Anybody who was paying attention to anything knew that Obama was going to win the 2012 election. Well, anybody who was paying attention to 538. Certainly anybody who was paying attention. <laughs> but, you know, we, we get or, or Nate gets a lot of credit for calling 50 states right in 2012 and, and he deserves that credit. But the reality was you didn't need, you know, a statistical model to know that Texas was going to go Republican and Massachusetts was going to go Democrat. And you didn't need much to know that uh, that Obama was going to win that. Now, you know, looking out further back in time, it, it was more of a of a challenge. Um, but, mm -hmm. you know, we would see – you see stories all the time even today in the press that really misuse numbers or that ignore the existence of evidence. And, and so some of that is what we're trying to push back against. Isn't there also – I mean one of the things that I understand about numbers – and I don't understand a lot <laughs> about numbers. Uh, I can pick them out of a lineup. OK, if somebody says, show me a six. You, you can identify a, yes, a six I'm every really, time. Unless I'm upside down. Uh, but uh, then um, it's that you can kind of make them work the way you want. Yes, no. So I mean, you know, there, there's the the sort of old line about you know you torture numbers enough, they'll tell you whatever you want. Yeah. Um, and and so you certainly see that, right? You see partisans on on both sides who use numbers to prove whatever they already believe, and and we all have to sort of be on our guard against that when we work with numbers, right? To avoid just proving whatever it is that we want to prove, find whatever we want to find. At the same time, I think you know we certainly believe that numbers and evidence provide a way to ground stories in reality in a way that just sort of your subjective take on something mm -hmm. doesn't allow. Um, you know, I wouldn't know just by kind of reading press reports and hearing from friends on my Facebook feed who was winning out of uh, Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton right now. Mm -hmm. We can look at the numbers and we can see that Hillary Clinton is winning mm -hmm. and we can put sort of a probability on that, an estimate on that. That doesn't mean that she will win necessarily, right. but we can look at it and we can say this is not dead even right now. It yeah. is not a 50-50 coin flip. Right. Uh, and we can look at that and that's certainly true in a lot of other fields. 
field so that we can kind of ground our understanding in some real evidence in a way that sort of just kind of your gut feeling is not going to do. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I remember um, Al Franken was debating something. During that debate, he was uh, saying over and over again, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Right. I think that's sort of very fundamentally what we're we're built on here. And, you know, look, there's a lot of room to debate even once you accept certain facts, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the interpretation of those facts, the, the what policies you ought to adopt in response to those facts, right? There's plenty of room for debate on those issues. And, and I think that, you know, journalists, data journalists included, sometimes make a mistake when they when they blend fact and opinion or fact and analysis and don't distinguish between them. Mm-hmm. Um, but but there are such things as facts. I think we believe that pretty firmly. And, uh, you know, I think journalism would be improved to have have more of that made clear. Sure. And I think that, you know, as somebody who is, as I believe I may have mentioned earlier, re- relatively mathematically averse, uh, I think I would have really appreciated as a kid in school getting a little bit of a of a social scientific uh, uh, introduction to math in a way that 538 does that's compelling. You know, there are kids who love sports, hate math. Boom. There you go. They're one that you make them one in the same, same thing. But that that's, um, it wasn't around really when I was in, in school. So um, what turned you on to the concept of, of economics and, 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 uh, and, and how did you find that you had a facility for that? Well, so it's funny. I mean, there's an old there's an old joke that uh, that people get into journalism because they hate math. Uh, and, and I I never there's certainly some truth to that. Uh, hopefully, it's becoming less true. Yeah. I sort of never fell into that category. I mean, I was somebody who was always interested in writing. Who was always into you know I loved English class and history class in high school. Um, but I enjoyed math. I was I was good at it. I wasn't great at it. Uh, I actually went to when I got to college. I thought I was going to major in either political science or uh, astrophysics. Uh, and which were about as far apart as you could get. I never went very seriously with the astrophysics in part because I figured out that I'm I'm really good at math by journalistic standards and pretty darn bad at math by astrophysical standards. standards. Uh, I am not not (laughs) Neil deGrasse Tyson or Uh Stephen Hawking or whoever. Uh Um, But, you know, I sort of always had that – that interest in in evidence. Okay. And, you know, I, I think, you know, we talk a lot about data journalism, but I sort of really ultimately think that what we do is evidence-based journalism. Okay. Um, so I, I ended up majoring in political science, but I got in, I sort of walked into the student newspaper on campus uh, something like my first week and basically spent the next four years there. I probably skipped a lot of class. While in college? In college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and where'd you go to college? I went to Columbia. Right. Um, Right here in the city. So was there, Uh, I mean, are there sort of uh, journalistic endeavors that you're particularly proud of having pursued in, in your, during your time with the paper at Columbia? The uh, Spectator? The Spectator, the Columbia Daily Spectator. That's right. um, Which is now a primarily online publication, but was a five day a week uh, publication at the time. Honestly, probably the thing I was proudest of was just getting it out every day, which is a small (laughs) miracle with an all volunteer Mm -hmm, staff of, mm -hmm. uh, of undergraduates. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I covered uh, the administration. Sure. I covered, um, I broke the news of the new president, the now not remotely new president, Lee Bollinger. Uh, the, the Michigan Daily and I were fighting over who was going to break that uh, 
that news, and we did we did get that scoop. So did you was... uncover this piece of information, or were you being given this piece of information? Um, like... It was not meant to be public yet. Got it. Uh, and people were pretty mad at us, in particularly yeah. the very uh, senior, uh, the guy who was leading the search committee, who was a very big shot lawyer. Yeah, in, they usually in are. In New York. Right. Uh, and when I called him at night to say, we're planning on running this story, and you know I need your comment, and he was... Not pleased to be woken up by some puny undergraduate. At, uh, <laughs> that must have been that must have been exhilarating. It was it was exciting. I mean, I, you know, I was bitten by the by the journalism bug mm-hmm, pretty mm-hmm. early, which is a good thing because I, I missed enough class that really probably uh, <laughs> if I hadn't gone into newspapers, it would have been uh, it would have been bad news for me. Yeah, cool. So you said this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. I, you know, what you major was, in though? I majored in political science. Okay. Um, so a lot of economics in that. Yeah, and and you know, I wasn't. Um, I, I mean, I took some economics in in college. I took some statistics in college, mm-hmm. uh, but. My path to covering economics was was through the newspaper world. I mean, I went and I worked for a small newspaper for a few years up in the Boston area where I'm from. I came uh, back to New York to work for the Wall Street Journal, which eventually brought me to Texas where I covered the oil and gas business for the Wall Street Journal. And that was kind of the beginning of a transition to economics, right? Oil and gas business is a business that deals with billions and billions of dollars. It deals with... Um, you know, geopolitical forces and supply and demand. Real quickly, why are the Saudis keeping the oil prices low? They are trying to force out the uh, American producers. They think that they are a low-cost producer and can crunch the the American oil producer. Can they hold out forever on this? This is what we will find out. We are are testing. This is a, a economics experiment playing out in real time. Many of us are watching it with great interest. But meanwhile, your gas is cheap. So... You know, don't complain about it too much. I don't drive a car. So, well, there's that. But uh, other things, uh, my my airfare is not cheap. Well, so there's a whole still... other question is, is why aren't uh, airfare flight prices coming <laughs> Because <down>? they're greedy <laughs> and they can make a lot of money by not pushing. Right? Am I wrong? Well, huh? they, they don't. They're not being they're not being pushed to. Is that an economical term? Greedy, yeah, greedy. That's, we, we like that. We, we okay. say uh, in economics, you say that, that people are driven um, by greed and by fear. Okay. These are sort of the two fundamental forces. Right. Not their own rational self-interest well, or whatever. Well, rational self-interest sort of as as interpreted through through a combination of greed. Of greed and fear. Right? Yeah. Okay. Those aren't that's not cynical. Well, I mean the notion the, the sort of all of economics is built on the idea that people want to they want to be able to get more, mm-hmm. right? Not necessarily for base reasons, right? More for their family, more for their community, more because they want to be able to do things. Uh but and they're worried about losing uh out on uh, on what they have, losing what they have, they're worried about losing opportunities, right? And so it's those two tensions that are that are pulling against each other. It pretty much is it all ever enough for anyone? <laughs> the article that you published last week, I think it was last week, Monday or something like that. It was called "Shut Up About Harvard." <laughs> <laughs> it's going for the uh, the attention grabbing headline. Nice there. work, nice work, shared widely. In the uh, college counseling world, both in the high school side and the, you know, uh, college side, and um, I want to talk about the contents of the article. But why did you pick that headline? In addition to it just being a very sort of provocative on its own, but I mean, what what, what are we what are we needing to shut up about that place for? I mean, so this has been a I've been I, I've been telling people I've been building towards this rant for a number of years now, Great. and if, sort of finally yeah. bubbled over. Okay. It was time to it was time to go. I mean, look, we we singled out Harvard uh, not through any particular fault of Harvard, but as it embodying something. It's iconic, absolutely to mean. 
to, to me, to represent sort of elite colleges. And, you know, I have this critique and the piece is sort of fundamentally a critique of uh, my colleagues in the media and to some extent of um, sort of the American education discussion more broadly that we have this myopic focus on a certain type of institution. And if, if I say college, what is going to come to, I think, most people's minds is this idea of sort of young people, 18 to 22, you know, living on a leafy suburban campus or John maybe it's an urban campus up here at Columbia, you know, li yeah, living in dorms and going to classes and attending frat parties and kind of all of this. Um, University of Oregon, by the way, they filmed Animal House. Did they really? Yeah. Sort of set at Dartmouth, but... Uh, See, actually you know, that. like, come on, guys, you know, see, even there they twist the narrative, right. you know, yeah. But this is, we have this sort of very powerful image. We get it in the movies, right? We absolutely get it in, uh, you know, uh, we get it in the movies, we get it in TV shows, and we get it in media coverage, press coverage of college. And the reality is that that model is the minority of students in this country, right? Something like 25%, uh, 30% of students college students in this country fall into sort of that category of full-time uh, four-year students at a residential undergraduate college. So here's, so for the benefit of those that haven't read the article, I, here's the, the, the quote you write, here's the reality. Most students never have to write a college entrance essay, pad a resume, or sweet talk a potential letter writer. And then you go on to say, um, this is the part I think that really illustrates sort of how overblown the panic is. According to data, there's that word, uh, from the Department of Education, more than three quarters of the U.S. undergrads attend colleges that accept l at least half of their applicants. Just 4% attend schools that accept 25% or less, and hardly any, well under 1%, statistically insignificant. We'll get into that. Uh, well under 1% attend schools like Harvard and Yale that accept less than 10% of their applicants. So, um, and so when we talk, we're talking about college, we're talking in this context, we're talking about four-year colleges, right? Yeah, those stats are all for four-year colleges. If you bring in community colleges, which are account for close to half of uh, of undergraduate students, uh, then those numbers are even um, look even more skewed. So, so half of all students in this country that are pursuing some form of post-secondary education are in are doing that in community colleges. Are doing that in community colleges, wow. um, close right. to half. And then of the people in four-year schools, the vast majority, three quarters of them, are attending schools that accept more applicants than they reject. Hmm. And a significant number of those are accepting are, are attending colleges that att accept essentially everybody um, mm -hmm. who's qualified. Uh, you know, who, who's graduated high school and who meets sort of basic uh, thresholds uh, in terms of test scores and that kind of thing. So, so we talk about, you know, these schools in the media. Well, we hear about them a lot. Obviously, everybody knows the names of these places. There's this prestige element, you know, um, call it celebrity status, yeah. right? And it's like the Ivy League is like the, uh, you know, the Kim Kardashian and uh, uh, Kanye West of, of the celebrity world. You know, you, you just don't hear that much about what uh, Harvey Keitel did last <laughs> night. You know what I mean? Uh, and so, it, it, but that, that's the thing, right? It's a, it's attention grabbing. Is that, is that? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I don't, there's nothing wrong with elite 
colleges, and I mean, I attended an Ivy League school. And you were, you were, in fairness, you were, you were, you were fair to that point to right, mention we that. Tried in to the, make sure yeah. I included that. Uh, somebody, <laughs> somebody called it out and said, "Oh, this is a humble brag." And I said, "I really think it would have been like kind of in- inappropriate to not mention that I like, yeah. didn't fall in that category." Right. Um, look, there's nothing wrong with elite universities. They serve a tremendously important purpose. Uh, we'll certainly, I'm sure, we'll talk more about you know whether whether it's it's worth it or not. But but they they exist. They should be talked about. Um, what I think the, what is pernicious is when we treat that experience as representative of the college experience in this country and when we pay it such a disproportionate amount of attention. And, you know, by the way, like we, we talk a ton about, about Harvard and Yale and Stanford. We also talk about public institutions, but a very select group of public institutions, right? So when I say elite, I don't only mean these sort of very difficult to get into private institutions, but you know, places like the University of Michigan, the University University of Wisconsin. I heard somebody refer to uh, these groups as Ivy League and Ivy like. Yeah, Ivy League, Ivy like. Um, you know, think of these as as you know, flagship campuses of, right. of large public universities. Sort of thinking Berkeley and Michigan and sure, like absolutely. Right. And and those those schools are not selective in terms of their admissions rate in in a way that that uh, Harvard or Yale is, but they are in many ways similar in that they are these residential campuses um, they have you know an elite group of students they graduate students at a at a significant at a high rate um, and so I in a way I'd like to think that we sort of have almost two separate college systems in this country we have a system of elite universities including both private schools and um, these sort of more selective um, elite public universities and then we have a whole other system that is, Community colleges and regional public universities um, that accept, you know, most people who apply to them, uh, and these are two systems that that exist in parallel, but actually have sort of very little relation to each other in many ways. It's John Edwards, two Americas, two Americas, and and the thing is, is there's nothing wrong with talking about both of them. Yeah. Um, but right now we only talk about one, mm-hmm. and it's the much smaller one. What would be the benefit in talking about the other one? Well, so for one thing, seventy-five percent of undergraduate of students attend those those schools, right? You know, depending on exactly how you want to define it. So, for one thing, if we're going to talk about higher education in this country, doesn't it make sense to talk at least some about the higher education system that serves the majority of students? These these are, you know, if if you think about your state university system wherever you are, and you know, cross the flagship off the list and and look at the next one that you think of, yeah, right? This could be UMass Lowell. This could be uh, Eastern Kentucky University. If it has a, 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 a cardinal direction in the in the name, right? You know, south wherever, north wherever, uh, chances are this is one of the schools that we're, that we're talking about. Probably here. excluding Northwestern. North Car- or Northwestern, right, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, University of North Carolina, it doesn't count. But yeah, right, if, if we're yeah. talking about, you know, Southern Illinois University, whatever it might be, you know, these are the kinds of these kind of schools we're talking about yeah. here. So, so for one thing, just the sheer numbers mean that we ought to be talking about it. The other is, and, and this is something that I, I spent a lot of time on in the piece, is that the issues that face students at those schools are different issues. And part of our problem is that the education policy discussion gets driven by these, these elite schools and we act as though the problems that exist at those schools, and there are real problems that exist at those schools, 
that they are the same problems that affect higher education in general. And we end up ignoring a whole slew of problems that affect far more people that are in many cases much more pressing. But we don't talk about them because we don't even think about those schools when we think about college. For instance? So one example of this is uh, is education funding. Um, we hear some about this, right? It doesn't get, get zero attention. But when we talk about state cutbacks to public education, to, to public higher education, right, that doesn't affect private universities, right? Harvard doesn't care whether Massachusetts spends, uh, how much Massachusetts spends on higher education. Um, and it has some effect, but a much reduced effect on the flagship campuses because the flagship campuses have alumni who give, they have sports teams, they have um, patent revenue, um, they have you know a whole slew of sort of other potential funding sources that exist. And, and so student tuition and state aid make up a smaller piece of that. The regional universities depend much, much more heavily on public funding. And when they lose public funding, the only source that they can really turn to for for their funding is their students and their families. And so what we've seen is over the last 10 years, it used to be that at most of these schools, families were expected to cover about a third of the cost uh, of attending. And now in many states, thanks to cutbacks, students are expected to cover 50% or more of the cost. And so when we talk about the rising cost of college, you know, we, we tend to hear about administrative salaries and, you know, new rec centers with lazy rivers and kind of all of this kind of stuff. And, and those are real issues. But a lot of it is about reduced state funding. And we get sort of hidden from that because the schools that we tend to focus on are not uh, are not those schools. And furthermore, you know, those private schools, you know, this is something that I have to contend with as uh, someone that works for a private school that costs, you know, the equivalent of a fully loaded, you know, Audi, you know, A8 right. every year, every year right. uh, you know, that we have to contend with the fact that people look at that and go, oh my God, never mind that, you know, um, 85% of the people that go to that school don't pay that amount of money, you right. know, and that there's a substantial amount of, of, of support there. However, the sticker price on a state school might be lower and you might have in-state tuition to to assist with that however some of these are some of these issues that you're talking about making attendance at state schools in many instances perhaps uh less within reach for families than it might be to go to a private school with a higher sticker price so i mean i think i think that's a very important point i think it's a true point but i think that when we're talking about that right we're still talking about this elite group of schools right, <laughs> right? so then we're god talking damn it again, we're talking i can't get away i'm sorry about these about people who are deciding am i going to attend the university of michigan or am i going to attend yeah. you know xyz private school right. and those are important conversations and it's important for people who are making that choice right to recognize that the sticker price is not the number that they should be okay. looking at so, so most people aren't even making that choice exactly yeah and so i mean are we you know, it seems that there, there's there's a there's definitely these days a a movement afoot to kind of push the notion that you know you do not need to go to a place of prestige in order to lead a happy life. There's a lot of media out there, Frank mm -hmm. Bruni, sort of carrying the flag uh, for that. Is there a hope that you know media coverage around this issue shifts in the direction that you're uh, suggesting it should, and B when and see <laughs> what's the impact liable to be, or what would be the impact of something like that? And, and, and then furthermore, what would be the economic impact of something like that? That was a point. All right, a lot of 
Lots yeah. of things to think about yeah. there. Do you want me to add some more? Yeah, please. Don't okay. ask me more questions there, and we'll get them all at once. <laughs> well, so let, me, let me say a few things here. One is this column was not intended as an argument to students for why they shouldn't attend. A place like that. A pla- like, place like that. Got it. Um, there's nothing – You know, again, I attended a sure. place like that. Sure. I think there are legitimate questions about whether it makes sense uh, for you know a student to you know, load up their schedule with twelve different extracurriculars and take you know five different SAT prep classes and whatever in a desperate bid to get into that one school that right. they care about. Right. I mean, I think that that's that's a, a difficult conversation and, yeah. and probably a separate conversation. Um, but look, I, I think that for many students who credibly could go to an elite school, there may be very good reasons why it makes sense to do that and kind of what level of elite we want to talk about here is a fair question and, mm-hmm. and you know, should, should you be looking for the – to go to the local, um, you know, state flagship versus to a private school, mm-hmm. et cetera, as, you know, all mm-hmm. – are all legitimate conversations. Um, I think that the argument that I'm making is a little bit different than that, which is that we ought to be talking about schools that – most of the students, if you go to sort of any pick a high school in America, right, you know, there are going to be a couple of students at the top of the class right. who are sitting there trying to figure out which school that they're going to. Right. There are going to be a lot more students who are trying to make some different decisions, right? right? They're trying to decide if they're going to go to college. If they decide they are going to go to college, they're trying to decide if they're going to go to a two-year school or to a four-year school. And if they're going to a four-year school, then the chances are, right, that they're going to go somewhere within 50 miles of home. There, it's going to be a public university. Maybe they will apply to the um, to the state flagship. Maybe they won't. Uh, a lot of people don't. Um, but the notion of sort of going to a private school or to an out-of-state school or to a highly selective school is just sort of not even on the radar screen. And mm-hmm. there's we you know we can debate about whether it should be. There's been a lot of interesting research over the last few years about why even very high-achieving students don't go to high-achieving, low-income students don't end up attending schools they probably could. Right. Um, and that's an important conversation, but it again is sort of focusing on this narrow band right. of students when what we really need to be thinking about is how do we serve the the majority of students sitting in that high school class who are increasingly going to go to some college. Uh, but it, it is probably not going to be one of these these ones that we we spend so much time talking about. Right. I mean it's clear to me, I think, and there's there's certainly a a continuous and growing fervor all the time to try to help. Right now, I mean, here we are, a couple of grown-ass men (laughs) talking about this, and this whole thing is all being moderated and executed by adults, uh, arguably for the service of children. And we're in a position, and we've got a social responsibility here to be mindful of that, right? To be mindful of the development of the youth of our country such that, you know, and then to, to, to be a you know, to carry it through to economics, you know, so that they can get, be well-educated and prosper and we can have a great country and great society and everything. And so the shifting of the debate away from everybody needs to get through this insane keyhole or else right, would do a really good public service to the general temperament of American youth, no? Well, I mean, so for one thing, I, I think that our focus on these schools runs the risk of sending the message to people that getting into college is really hard. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that for most people, getting into college is not hard. And that's what you say in your piece that you show, you demonstrate with numbers that the overwhelming majority of places that you got to go, they don't, they don't, it's not necessarily selective. Right. They're not, they're not selective schools. And so, you know, we, we have made great, great strides in this country at making college accessible 
to students. If you want to go to college in this country and you graduate from high school, you know, you are almost certainly going to be able to go to college. Mm -hmm. um, affordability is a huge issue, but we will certainly, we will provide the assistance that you need in order to go. Whether you're then able to pay off those loans is a whole other can of worms. And maybe it's we'll on talk my about list. That. Yeah. yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. get to that. Um, but but you're, if, if you want to go to college in this country and you've graduated high school, you're going to be able to go to college. Um, the much bigger challenge for, for very many people is not getting into college, it's getting out of college, it's graduating from college. And, you know, the national college graduation rate is 58%. And that is for full time, first time students. That is already limiting our set of students to people who are in college for the first time. Uh, who are going full time? That's and that's a, a six-year graduation rate that's, too. That's isn't over it? six years, right? Um, it's so it's not, not a four-year. So even not, four years, four like years closer to forty percent or something. And you, it ignores transfer students, which may, about a third of students transfer. Uh, it ignores mm -hmm. part-time students, um, which about a quarter of four-year students are part-time, who may take six, seven years to complete their bachelor's degree because they're doing it just piecemeal. And we know from research that the longer it takes to finish, the less likely you, likely you are ever to finish, right? Mm -hmm. Life intervenes. Mm -hmm. You end up um, you end up getting married. You end up having kids. You end up, um, you know, getting a job that may not be a great job, but it's going to get you through. And so are you, you know, you want you pick up some more hours rather than finishing school. We pay much less attention to how to make sure that students, once they get to those colleges, actually succeed and actually manage to come out of there with a degree. And that is, it's hugely important for a lot of reasons, not least of which that if we are going to have people taking on debt, then graduating with debt can be a challenge. Not graduating with debt, as in having debt but not getting a degree, is a much worse situation. And mm -hmm. so we have to figure out a way to make sure that once people choose to enroll in schools, that they're then actually coming out of there with a degree that will help them. So in addition to, I think, a skewed perception of what happens in college being the fact that it only happens at a certain type of college, it's also that we only ever talk about getting into it right. as if the rest will just fall into place. And you know, at an elite school, the chances are that it will. At selective schools, close to 90% of people graduate within six years. So for them, right, getting in, getting into Harvard, if you get into Harvard, your chances of getting out with a Harvard degree are extremely high. But that's not true with a lot of these other schools. It's kind of a rising tide lifting all boats sort of thing, right? You look to your left, you look to your right, everybody is going to get out of here because they come from this environment or that environment. We're all doing this together. Well, having gone but to Columbia, I, of course, you know, like to joke that nobody at Harvard has to do anything. Um, <laughs> Because of our, our, our rivalry at Columbia, we actually had to go to class and actually had to work. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> That's okay. That yep. Knife. Hey, yeah. man, you know, this is the time. They can handle it. You know what I mean? They can handle the, the digs. Uh, they've been getting them for 450 <laughs> years at this point or whatever. But, yeah, they, um, but then the other thing is that um, they're only thinking about getting in in terms of what it can get them when they get out. You know, that's the other way that people are thinking about college that I think is unfairly um, representative of the experience in that, you know, and I'm curious your opinion on this matter, that the point of going to college is not just to get a job so that you can afford having gone to college. You know, that there are other benefits to be derived from having been there. 
And we're not talking about, and that's sort of one of the missions that I'm on here a little bit, we're not talking about that experience of being there and what happens in, in, in between. You know, as I mentioned, with, I think it was in Bruni's book, and I mentioned it with an, an earlier guest. It's like that movie, Robert Redford, uh, you know, The Candidate, right. where he says, what do we do now? You know, you get in, it's like, oh right, man, yeah. what do, now what do I do? And you're not really thinking about that. You've been spending so much time just kind of getting there. And A, you shouldn't, because the majority of people in this country won't have to, but B, also you should think about what happens after you get in. So I, I think this is, is complicated. So again, I, I, went to, I went to Columbia. I, I very much had that experience of you know, sitting around in dorm rooms talking about the meaning of life. Mm-hmm. I, I had some you know, amazing professors who, who opened my eyes to a, a great many things. Um, you know, college absolutely served that purpose for me of, of broadening my world and teaching me how to think and, you know, the life of the mind and all of that. And I, I would never want um, to diminish the importance of that. And I would never want to, uh, to say that, that we don't want to open that opportunity up to as many students as possible. That said, we have made a decision as, this con- as a country uh, or, or whether we've made a decision or not, there is a reality us, or, yeah. in this country that post-secondary education is our workforce training system. That's not inevitable. Uh, if you look in Germany, they have uh, an extensive apprenticeship system um, where you can get into uh, you know a great many professions without going through formal um, post-secondary education. Uh, and there are other models that exist around the world. But in this country, the system that exists for getting people ready to get good jobs uh, is through community colleges and undergraduate uh, colleges and universities. Now, let me let me distill that a little bit and, and ask if you mean that, that you're referencing the fact that without that education, there's very real data that shows that your salary is impacted negatively. If you're a young person- And that your own degree of social mobility is directly correlated to the amount of education you receive. Yeah. If if you're a 25 to 34-year-old, you're with just a high school degree, um, your median earnings are about $30,000 a year. With an associate's degree, um, you know, that goes up to- um, Thirty-seven, thirty-eight thousand dollars, and with a bachelor's degree, you know that goes up to close to fifty thousand dollars, right? So somebody with a bachelor's degree earns, you know, two thirds more mm-hmm. than somebody with just a high school diploma. Right. Um, now you have to be careful in with education data, right? There's a lot of um, correlation and causation problems here, right? The people who who go to college are, of course, you know, people who are more likely to succeed in college in the first place. They may have certain skills that, you know, they, they would be likely to succeed in, in any setting. And increasingly, people who don't go to college maybe people who would have struggled there. Um, so it, we can't necessarily say that college is causing all of that increase in earnings. But it is certainly the case, uh, and I think that this is something that people understand at this point, that it is very, very difficult to get a middle-class job in this country without a bachelor's degree, certainly without at least an associate's degree. That wasn't always the case, right? So it used to be that you could come out with a high school diploma or in many cases less than a high school diploma and get a good job. Uh, You could raise a family on it. And so then the purpose of college, there are a number of purposes of college, but one of them was for sort of a relatively elite group to go and have that life of the mind and explore the you know, the meaning of, of the world and, you know, that college did something much more than just bring you earnings because you could go and you could get earnings in plenty of other ways. 
increasingly people have to go to college in order to get a decent job. And we're telling them that, right? We're not going into high schools and telling people you have to go to college because you're going to want to, you know, read the great works of the Western canon, right? We're telling people you have to go to college because otherwise well, some of us are, but it just to, it doesn't land. You somehow know? it doesn't stick. Yeah. I mean, that's, look, if if we were if we were pitching, if there were another workforce training system, and 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 then you know our argument for going to college was, are you the type of person who wants to be able to? you know, explore the life of the mind in this way, then that, that you know, that, that would be fine. That's not the system that we have. And, and mm -hmm. so, you know, I hear a lot of people in higher education sort of complain about how, you know, we talk too much about college as a mechanism towards getting a job and getting higher earnings. That is the reality of the system right. that we have. And, and you can you can bemoan that. You can regret that. Maybe you can work to change that. But right now, That's the deal. That, that, is, that is the system. And the thing – and it's in, and it's important for me too to kind of keep these these two ideas separate too because on the one hand, I, I think about the fact that I, I want – you know, I talk to families who – I mean uh, – like let's, our chemical engineering department is very proud to announce that they're the one whose graduates have the highest starting salary yeah. of anybody. You know what I mean? And that's it's a good thing worth touting. Um, and that's a very pre-professional track. Like you don't necessarily, I mean, you know, that's generally the direction those right. kind of graduates go. But that unfortunately, it's at the expense of other kinds of uh, things that you can study in college that, you know, make parents sort of scratch their heads when their kids say that they're studying, you know, classics and stuff. Um but that there's there's spaces in the economy for people who do that, and it's not called being a professional classicist. You know what I mean? There are other ways you right. can go with something like that because you learn different things. And so it's not in a liberal arts environment. It's not a job training program, whereas in other kinds of institutions of higher education, it absolutely is if it's job training or definitely pre-professional. That's one idea. The other idea is the one that you were just talking about, which is to say the reality is um, your social mobility and your ability to lead a comfortable life is directly related to the degree of education you have. And yeah, that's I mean, the, it is just, it is just throughout. Look, okay. I'm a great believer in the, in the liberal arts. Um, I'm absolutely a believer that I have benefited from having taken, you know, a wide range of classes. Columbia has a, has a very strong core curriculum. Uh, so, you know, I, I did, I've literally read the classics. Um, and, you know, look, I, I don't. Can you quote mean, us a few lines right. of the Aeneid? Or, here. Yeah. Um, and and look, I, I I don't want this to come across as some sort of you know class argument where you know people who come from you know an affluent background get to go and study the classics, and that we're shoveling kind of everybody else off into you know these these career training programs. Uh, I think there's absolutely room for studying the liberal arts in a regional university setting. I think there's sure. absolutely we absolutely should be finding ways to identify um, high-achieving, low-income students and bring them to schools like Harvard and like Columbia. Right? Mm -hmm. um, that said, again, a large percentage of the people who are attending college are attending college because they look out at the landscape and they correctly assess that the only way that they are going to be able to raise a family and own a home and have a secure retirement and go on vacation once a year and kind of all the things that they want is to be able to go and get a degree. Mm -hmm. And that's the system that we have. And, you know, we need to figure out how to make sure that when they embark on that, that they are able to achieve that goal. So let me switch into then the monetary 
considerations of this from a cost perspective, because that's one of the other things that you address, yeah. you know, and you link to a lot of really useful articles uh, in your story. One of them, I think, is is literally called, you know, college is, you know, increasingly not worth it yeah. for families. And this is like Wall Street Journal or something. I don't have a subscription, so I can read the whole thing. <laughs> I'll give you my login. Yeah. Um, take that paywall concept. So I wanted to just ask if you have a sense from an economic perspective, because we're talking about media bias yep. as well, to what extent is this country really in a student debt crisis and how do we break that down? College debt, I think, is a huge issue. Uh, and it is it is a very serious issue. Is one that deserves the attention that it's been getting. I think that the college debt conversation that we often have is in many ways the wrong one. Um, the stories that you read, and this in fairness I think has improved a little bit uh, in the last um, year, maybe 18 months. Um, but the, the stories that we tend to read have these sort of eye-popping numbers in them of, you know, somebody with a six-figure debt load or a high five-figure debt load, these sort of massive debts that they're never going to be able to pay off. The reality is that, that most people who have that kind of debt load um, fall into a couple of different categories. A very large number of them have graduate degrees, right? These are people who went to medical school. They went to law school and they took on a lot of debt. Um, it's not that those people never get themselves into trouble. Uh, we've certainly heard about people who go to law school and then struggle, but by and large, people who are who are going to medical school and going to law school are going to be able to, you know, make good livings and are going to be able to pay down these debts. Um, we have people who take on a lot of debt to attend for-profit universities that are often of dubious quality. Um, I don't like to paint with too broad a brush there, uh, but clearly there there are many examples of for-profit universities that so, right. um, don't pay off, and so there's there's that whole category. So the example there is. Um, maybe that the the value that the students are thinking that they're getting for the degree was right. inflated. That it's that's not right. They think, oh, it's a bachelor's degree, it's a bachelor's degree, it's a bachelor's degree. And you know, I think that there is um, some truth to that when we talk about um, uh, public and and nonprofit private institutions. But it, it's clearly not true in many cases with for profit. So then you you have you take out all this debt and it spend a lot of money. Separate from that, the people who really tend to be the ones to get into trouble with student debt are not by and large people with really high debt loads. In fact, there is generally speaking an inverse relationship that the people who get into the most trouble are often the people with smaller debt loads. Um, and there are sort of two, broadly speaking, two reasons for that. One is it's really bad, as I alluded to earlier, to take on debt and then not end up with a degree. So right. you get a lot of people who go to college for a year, for two years, um, sometimes for three years take on debt, don't end up with a degree. And now they have, you know, less debt than they would if they went for all four years, but they don't have a they don't have a degree. And so they don't get right all of those statistics that I sort of cited about how much more money you make, right? You don't get much more money for having some college and no degree. Right. It's, you know, you are you're either over the bar or you aren't. Right. And so, you know, there are a lot of people who end up in trouble that way. There are also a lot of people who take on you know, comparatively small debt loads and do get a degree, but from an institution that doesn't end up providing them with that earnings bump for profits in a lot of cases, but not exclusively that, um, who go to sort of specific job training type programs, certificate type programs um, that vary a lot in quality and, and vary a lot in sort of how in demand those skills are in the marketplace. Those are people who really then end up in student debt trouble. 
uh, and I think we talk we talk a lot about um, stories of people who sort of take on you know really big debt loads, uh, and that ignores what actually sort of the much larger piece of that of that problem is. The one other thing I should say is when we read these is college worth it stories, there's a tendency for the anecdotes to get used in those stories to be you know some some young woman who went to Swarthmore and studied art history, some guy who went to, you know, fill in the blank, um, you know, small liberal arts college or, or, you know, private institution and studied something, you know, esoteric. Uh, this is what I was saying before, right? Right. That certain, the, certain majors just have people roll their no eyes. value in the uh, social consciousness. And, and look, I, those, I'm sure that those anecdotes are true and those people exist and, and maybe for them college wasn't worth it. By and large, the people who are making those choices are people who come from families with a certain uh, amount of means. Uh, they are um, you know, probably, frankly, going to be okay in the long run. You don't, you don't see a lot of people attending you know, regional public universities and majoring in these esoteric areas. They're majoring in things like business, in healthcare fields, and things that they think correctly or incorrectly are going to get them jobs. Right. And you know, when we sort of have these debates about you know, whether you're getting anything out of college and we cite these examples um, that are just totally unrepresentative, then we miss again like the central question here about, about the value. Right. right. And so there's like this Maslow's pyramid thing, right, where the more comfort you have uh, on that level of safety and security, um, the more safe it is for you right. to to study things that maybe are not directly related to going into a professional career or, or that may, as far as you're concerned, lead directly into a career in whatever you're majoring in. No, I think that's exactly right. Look, I, it is clearly the case. Students, you know, we, we rag on students a lot for the choices that they make. And, and certainly there are plenty of decisions that 18, 19-year-olds make uh, that, that are probably not wise. Certainly I made decisions at 18, 19. Not me. They were not wise. All right, everything All you did good was, ones. But <laughs> I actually think, you know, people are, are, are pretty sensible by and large. Yeah. Uh, people who know that they have a safety net, right? And I don't necessarily mean like trust funds sitting there waiting for them, but they know that you know, they can go back and live it with mom and dad if they need to. They right. know that there's going to be food on the table. Um, they, they you know, know that there's a little bit of security there uh, if they're short on rent in the first couple of months after they get out. Right. Those are the people who are able to make those choices to to major in things that sort of don't have immediate labor market implications. Got it. And, and people who know that kind of they don't have that net to catch them are more likely to to study things that, that they think will pay off. I think one thing that's really, really important uh, is to make sure that people who are trying to choose majors or, or make college choices that will give them labor market benefits are have the information to make the right choices, right? Because in many cases, people major in business thinking that that's a surefire way to get in a job in business. And actually, in many cases, right, that's probably not the best move. Um, but you can see why somebody who's 18 or 19 and wants to go and get a good job says business. Well, that sounds good to me. There was one article that caught my eye a year ago, which I think I shared with you yeah. in advance about. Um, there's a he was the uh, uh, okay. His name is uh, Hunter Rawlings. He was he's the president of Association of American Universities, former president of Cornell and University of Iowa. So the article that he wrote is called "College is Not a Commodity. Stop Treating It Like One." So this is a you know a good 
economic thing to talk about with you as an economist. Okay. Are you an economist? Or I'm, I'm not an economist. What would you, I yeah. That very, okay. Uh, yeah. How would you? Typically, we, we talk about economists as people who have a PhD or at least a master's degree in economics. There we go. Uh, I, I like to joke that I, I'm not an economist, but I play one on the web. Uh, yeah. I, I, I do a lot of economic analysis, but and I'm certainly not a. Play one on the on the podcast. That's anyways. right. Yeah. That's right. So, anyways, you're an economics writer. You know a thing or two about this stuff, clearly. Um, so, uh, what he writes, and it's a little long, so. He writes, most everyone now evaluates college in purely economic terms. A lot of stuff that you and I have been talking about. Thus reducing it to a commodity like a car or a house. How much does the average English major at College X earn 18 months after graduation? It's all the kind of stuff that you and I have been talking about. Um, and he writes, even on purely economic grounds, such questions, while not useless, begin with a false assumption. If we're going to treat college as a commodity and an expensive one at that, we should at least grasp the essence of his economic nature. Unlike a car, college requires the buyer to do most of the work to obtain its value. The value of a degree depends more on the student's input than on the college's curriculum. He goes on to say, I know this because I have seen excellent students get great educations at average colleges, and unmotivated students get poor educations at excellent ones. And I've taught classes which my students have made great through their efforts and classes, which my students made average or worse through their lack of effort. Though I'd like to think I made a real contribution to student learning, my role was not the sole or even determining factor in the value of those courses to my students. A college education, then, if it is a commodity, is no car. The courses the students decide to take and not take, the amount of work the student does, the intellectual curiosity the student exhibits, so on and so forth, all contribute far more to her educational outcome than the college's overall curriculum, much less its amenities and social life. Yet most public discussion of higher ed today, which is what we're here talking about, public discussion of higher ed, pretends that the student should simply receive their education from colleges the way a person walks out of Best Buy with a television. Thoughts, reactions? So I, I found this to be a pretty frustrating uh, column. First of all, I, I think it's clear college is not a commodity. I think uh, he's absolutely right. Can we back that. up for those who may not? Like, what? Could you give me the definition of a commodity? So the, the classic example of a commodity is a, is a gallon of gasoline, right? It's the same uh, no matter where you buy it. Um, it's, uh, it's the same in any part of the country. Um, and so it, it doesn't matter which gallon of gas you buy or which barrel of oil or, or uh, you know, which, uh, you know, bottle of water you, you drink. It's, it's all the same stuff. Um, that clearly doesn't apply to college, right? Clearly different colleges are good for different people in all sorts of different ways. They have different strengths and they have weaknesses. Uh, and his point about students uh, being an important part of the equation is, of course, absolutely true. Uh, anybody who's been to college uh, has had the experience of, of you know two people sitting in the same class and getting totally different things out of it uh, and clearly in part that's or in large part that's driven by what they they put into it my issue here is 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 you know a fewfold one is i i think it's a, a straw man i don't think anybody has ever suggested uh that the student input into uh, a class experience is not important and that you know I, we certainly sometimes hear stories of students who, you know, think of themselves as the customer and, you know, you exist to serve me, and I don't doubt that those are true. But clearly, I mean, there's an understanding that students, if they're not willing to put in the work, are not going to get very much out of the experience. Well, and I know that certainly from a college admission standpoint, you know, it's frustrating to a lot of people to hear about colleges 
in college admissions office in particular, sort of adopting a Salesforce sort of model sure. and a customer service approach to their applicants. And so there's that kind of thing to feed into it too. Yeah. I mean, look, I, th I think that there is a, a legitimate problem at especially elite institutions where students kind of come in expecting the college just to serve them. And, you know, that's not necessarily the appropriate role. Um, but there's also a lot of resistance in the higher education community to sort of any form of measurement of their success. And, you know, I, I have some sympathy to that where a lot of the early measurement that existed was in like the U.S. News and World Report uh, example. And like still those, the one that matters, Still the one right? that matters. And, and look, those rankings are, uh, are, are BS. Matters in, right, in air quotes. Um, right. I mean, that, that's, they, they game the, the, rankings every year. They don't want the same school to be at the top all the time. Um, you know, look, it's not a good system. Uh, and I certainly think that any effort to evaluate colleges needs to take into account the particular circumstances that those colleges face, right? It doesn't make any sense to look at one metric uh, that that you know evaluates all schools certainly not one that doesn't take into account that they serve different student bodies that they try to serve them uh, in different ways that they have different goals at the same time you know at the end of the day if a university is not finding ways to help their students graduate and they're not finding ways to help their students achieve their goals and that isn't those aren't exclusively workforce goals but they are heavily workforce goals uh, then they have a problem. And, you know, I think just sort of saying, well, the students should have tried harder is, is maybe missing a little bit of the, of the point here. And, you know, one, one last thing on this, there are concrete things that schools can do to help students be more likely to, to succeed. Um, you know, half, more than half of students work. Large percentage of students, as we've already talked about, attend part-time. They have other things going on in their lives. Very frequently schools, and this is again sort of speaking at this non-elite level, right, where this where most of these students go, schools often don't do a good job of even just aligning schedules in a way that make it possible for people to to work while in school or, or to attend part-time. You know, there are a lot of, of um, you know, relatively straightforward things that, that schools can do to make them better serve their student bodies and to help their students succeed and frankly to help their students put in more of themselves so that they can be more successful. On the issue of the rankings, I'm a little embarrassed. I didn't even really think about this, but like um, we're at 538 for crying out loud. <laughs> you know, this is a number cruncher central evidence and facts and good stuff. All right, will you guys be putting out a college ranking list? This is you can break the news right here. Um, look, we, we have we have actually we talked about it, uh, and we we're not on the verge of doing it by any means, um, but we we've talked about it. Uh, I've played with some data to sort of look at these things. I, I think there are the, the central question that you have to answer before you even start to approach anything like this is what is the outcome? What's the point that we're trying to measure? Right. right? Uh, and if your goal is to evaluate schools based on how they help people earn their students, their graduates earn more money, uh, then there are a set of variables that you can look at there and you can try to control for things to make sure that you are measuring what the institution is giving them and not just taking into account that like smart people already go to Harvard. Um, there are things that you can look at for that. If your goal is, um, you know, to look at how much they improve on scores, you know, how much smarter kids get. Um, you could look at something different if you just want to. Providing you can 
do such a thing as to equate well, yeah. scores, scores with smartness, smart, right, which is, is certainly a dangerous thing. Yes. Um, there are a lot of things that you can that you can evaluate, but you have to agree on what you're even yeah. trying to measure in the first place. And I, I would argue that in many ways, evaluating all of these schools in one bucket uh, on one set of credentials just doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. to start with, right? The reason that somebody attends Harvard is not necessarily the same reason that somebody attends, uh, you know, UMass Lowell. Not again to pick on on UMass Lowell here. They they serve different purposes in our right. country, and and I don't think that it necessarily makes very much sense to think of them as, you know, trying to to achieve the same thing. But Ben, five thirty eight dot com's college ranking list. Smart business move, maybe. So look, this you guys is, would get you guys would get Jesus. I mean, clicks for days. So I mean, look, for years. there's no mystery about why U.S. News and World <laughs> Report, which practically doesn't exist anymore, why they no as a to thing. It, yeah, these these rankings. Um, you know, rankings are incredibly powerful, uh, and they're certainly powerful in terms of clicks. They're certainly powerful in terms of you know sort of getting through to people and and getting them to pay attention. Um, I I think. Rankings are, in most cases, a really terrible idea on yeah. something as complicated as as college. I don't think it accomplishes very much. You know, the Obama administration set out to basically create rankings. a value added ranking, right? And um, you know, they abandoned that. Uh, the cynical view of it is that they got so much pushback from the higher education community that they ran away from it. Mm-hmm. But the less cynical view is that they looked at this and they actually listened to people and they understood that it doesn't make sense to evaluate all of these institutions that serve different populations that have different goals. It doesn't make sense to evaluate all of them on the same metrics. Well, putting things into lists is the thing we do now, right? That's, I mean, just in general. I mean, and as a media, as a as a web-based, you know, media platform, I mean, Jesus, BuzzFeed and the, you know, the top 17, you know, pickles of all time, you know, that's the... Like BuzzFeed that. is sort of an interesting <laughs> but, example of this, though, right? I mean, this is sort of a, a, a silly thing in a way, but if you look at, at the quizzes that, that BuzzFeed puts out there, right, and you answer a few questions and then it says, like, I don't know, which Friends character <laughs> you are, uh-huh. um, are you an Anna or an Elsa uh, from uh, from Frozen or okay, whatever yeah, it is, yeah. um, the... the <laughs> That system in many ways, right, applied to something more serious makes more sense than a list, hmm. right? I mean, you like could imagine quiz. something that says... So there are more variables involved right, and I'm, more more conditional kinds of uh, of things that might be a little bit more tailored right, and personal you to you. And about what your goals are, right? It may very well be that, you know, somebody somebody's, um, you know, for one person, that Harvard is the best school for them. And for another cool. person, it's not at all. Let's say if you could, yeah, I mean, if you if you could do something like this, if you could create a, you know, let's assume that, you know, this is basically creating a list is the equivalent of building a nuclear bomb and making the world a worse place, but others have them. And if you had one, you'd be safer, maybe from a business perspective. But what would that, like, just a complete dream world, like taking into account the point of the article, to bring it back to that, that we don't talk enough about, let's say, schools on the... Right. Lower end of the of the U.S. news list and the experiences that students are having there and the value that that has to our national economy. What would a, what kinds of things would you weigh over others in a in a in a ranking that might be more useful to creating a a, a national understanding of, of higher education that you're trying to elaborate on and, or, or explain in, in this article? So, I mean, I think that, again, for for a large percentage of students, the goal is workforce outcomes, right? And so, you know, I think a couple of things to to think of here. One is most students do attend schools that are close to them. So the notion of a national ranking 
doesn't necessarily make very much sense for most students to start with, right? Because they're not thinking about, am I going to go to school in California or am I going to go to school in New York, right? They're saying, am I going to go, you know, which of the handful of institutions that are, you know, within a day's drive or potentially quite a lot less than that of my home are we thinking about? Um, so for one thing, I think any sort of serious attempt to accomplish this has to be looked at um, with geography in mind. Uh, I think that for for Students who are primarily looking for workforce outcomes, which again is not everybody, but is a large percentage of people, then it does make sense to do sort of a classic economic cost-benefit calculation, right? How much is it going to cost me? What are my expected earnings when I get out? Uh, and, you know, to calculate that, you have to factor in, right, what their expected earnings would be with, if they don't go to school, right? You have to think about, um, you know, your, your likely outcome is going to vary based on your test scores, based on your family background, based mm -hmm. on any of a number of factors. Um, and it has to factor in completion, right? What, what, are your, what is your probability of completing school? Right? You have, if you're going to look at sort of the range of possible outcomes, right? If you, if you don't go to school, we have sort of one set of, of outcomes. It may be very difficult to get a job. If you do get a job, it will probably be a very low-paying job. Um, but if you choose to attend college, right, you have your range of possible outcomes if you graduate, but you also have some probability of not graduating. And, you know, we ought to be able to, for a student, at when they're still in high school, to sort of assess for them. If you go to this school based on your characteristics, your probability of graduating within four years is 60%, and your probability of graduating within six years is 75%. Uh, and this, these are the outcomes in the scenario where you don't graduate, and here are the likely outcomes in the scenario where you do graduate, and we can put that together. And, and mm. you know, I think that kind of, that way of thinking about things that factors in all those probabilities, those are the questions that people ought to be asking. Provided they understand that probability is not prognostication, right? Well, I, look, I, I don't think that anybody would suggest that, you know, we ought to just like kind of dump a big spreadsheet uh, <laughs> in, a, in a high school guidance office. I don't and think say, you'd get like, very many clicks on, on that. And do this. Yeah. Uh, I, but I think that there are ways of talking to students yeah. at, the, at the high school and even earlier than that level about, you know, the decisions that they're making that make sure to inform them correctly about the various outcomes that are that are possible here. And look, I don't think that's going to dissuade people from attending college. And I don't think the goal should be to dissuade people from attending college. I do think that there's probably a subset of people who right now in the system that we have uh, who probably should not be attending the schools that they're attending because they're not going to graduate from them. Uh, now, I would prefer to see, the, to me, the better solution to that is to help that type of student graduate rather than saying that student shouldn't go to school. Mm -hmm. uh, but at least, you know, if the system exists... But perhaps the way, in the future, there could be the opportunity to better matching at least. Right, absolutely. Right. Well, you've uh, you've hit a nerve. You've uh, not... I mean, you know, in general, tapped a vein, whatever. There was certainly it, some Twitter conversation about it at the very least. Yeah, well, as I said, you know, before that this was, this was a huge topic of conversation on this Facebook group that I, you know, that I happened to to sort of uh, be in, it's like 9,500 college people. And, and yeah, somebody posted it like, you know, seven times and somebody was like, just the, the admin was like, stop it. Okay, we get it. Shut up about Harvard. Shut up about, shut up about Harvard is uh, probably what it, the line should have been. But anyways, I mean, uh, will you be continuing to write on this stuff? Absolutely. I mean, look, one of the things that we sort of highlighted in the story was all of these types of storylines that are not getting covered. And so, you know, if the rest of the media isn't going to pick it up, then... Um, you know, then, then maybe we will. You're certainly well positioned to do that. Um, 
Yeah. And, and look, I, mean, I think, you know, higher education uh, is an incredibly important issue for uh, for individual students, but also for the country as a whole and figuring out how to get it right is, is really important. And so it should be covered and it should be covered in a way that pertains to, to the majority of students. Totally agree. Thanks, man. Will you be, um, can I, can I call upon you again? Please. Anytime. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. Anything else you want to add? I think we, we pretty well covered it. All right. Yeah. Cool. So where would Elsa from Frozen go to college? Sorry, I have a three-year-old girl. So establishing yet another ranking system might be a great move for a media outlet like 538 for sure. As I was saying, they're numbers driven and so are rankings. And so, like I said, you know, good business move, I think. Uh, but, you know, I learned in my conversation with Ben that these guys are smarter than that. We'd all like to believe that these rankings are just a tool to help people. But when you look at the degree to which college admission activity is fully driven by the U.S. News rankings process, and as Ben discusses, you know there's more going on than it's just a tool to help families. He may have even gone ahead and called them BS. Did you catch that? Well, it'll be cool to see what they come up with if they do come up with something, because listening to Ben, I know that he's thinking about it the right way. It's clear that he gets it. And what he gets is that, A, to even do this is to join a media arms race that he's just decried in the article that got me talking to him in the first place. And B, none of us can say it enough until we are blue, green, uh, indigo, every Roy G. Biv color of the spectrum. Uh, in the face saying don't freak out or even care about prestige there's so much more to life and to society and in this way we continue to segregate ourselves based on that economic term that ben used in the interview fear we could all be forgiven for thinking that the system of higher education that matters in this country is comprised of like 30 or 50 or 100 amazing schools but the truth is that there are between three and 4,000 institutions of higher ed here. And while that system works for a lot of people, I think Ben made the case strongly that it's a system in trouble that could use the media's help a bit. We could stand to focus more on underfunded regional universities and on improving the national graduation rate and could stand to have the perspective that for tons and tons of people, that you even go to college should be considered a massive privilege, never mind where you go. Any way you slice it, a big part of why I'm interested in doing this podcast is because a huge part of what's broken about this system is our understanding of it. And to improve that understanding is, I believe, uh, to help fix it. All right, check me out at crushpodcast.com. Leave a voice message at 50386-CRUSH. I'm on Twitter at crushpod. Thanks, everybody. Hope you're hanging in there. See you next time.